I want to welcome each and every one of you to the service this evening, say we appreciate you being here. And if you are visiting with us this evening, we especially appreciate your presence, invite you back to this congregation at any time that you have the availability to be here. Uh, If you've been here this week, you know we are talking about a theme or discussing a theme that is the inspiration of the scriptures and uh, attempting to make a strong and valid uh, case and argument for the inspiration of the scriptures using a lot of different sources, a lot of different evidences, a lot of things outside of the scripture themselves. Now, I believe, and as I've said before, and as I want you to remember even tonight, that faith is the most important part of all of this. And we can't lose sight of the fact that we've got to have faith in the things that God has said. But my belief is that if the things written within the Scripture are inspired, then those things are also true. And if those things are true then we're going to be able to look in science, in history, in other uh, physical evidences, and we're going to see that truth backed up. And I believe actually that all of the evidence that we find in such places does indeed back the Scriptures up. And so tonight, we're going to take a look at the inspiration of the Scriptures from a historical point of view. Last night, we looked at a scientific view of Scripture, and we talked a lot about different theories and hypotheses that are presented uh, in this world and in society today. And we made a case for creation. We made uh, a case for looking at how the Bible has already been proven by science. Well, history is another fascinating uh, look to me into a way that we can back up and strengthen our faith. Now, I'm a history fan. I'm a history guy. I enjoy history. I enjoy looking into history. You may not be a history person. You may have been in school in a history class going boring, you know, and if you, if so, I hope that you'll at least for a few minutes this evening turn on the history button and say, I'm going to pay attention to some of these things because I believe in looking at history, we find valuable, valuable evidence for the inspiration of scripture. I want to start with Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. The Bible says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. There's a reason why we have the Scriptures. There's a reason why even the Old Testament we have. And it's to learn from. It's to be able to glean things out of, to learn truths from. To be able to apply those things to our life and to gain comfort and to gain hope from those things that are written. Now, if we're gleaning comfort and hope from the things that are written within Scripture, then certainly those things must be true and have to be true if they're going to give us comfort and give us true hope. And if they're true, then we'll see that backed up in the things that we look at tonight. I want to tell you about the the argument that a Bible critic might make. And this is taken from an article called The False Testament. Archaeology refutes the Bible's claim to history. This was published in 2002 in Harper's Magazine. A man named Daniel Lazar. Listen to what he says. In the last quarter century or so, archaeologists have seen one settled assumption after another concerning who the ancient Israelites were and where they came and where they came from proved false. Rather than a band of invaders who fought their way into the Holy Land, the Israelites are now thought to have been an indigenous culture that developed west of the Jordan River around 1200 B.C. Abraham, Isaac, and the other patriarchs appear to have been spliced together out of various pieces of local lore. The Davidic Empire, which archaeologists once thought as incontrovertible as the Roman, is now seen as an invention of Jerusalem-based priests in the 7th and 8th centuries B.C., who were eager to burnish their national history. All he's saying in that big, long paragraph is, archaeology has proven the Bible's not true. Archaeology has proven that the Israelites aren't who the Bible says they are. It's proven that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those guys never really existed. They're just stories that are made up. And the Davidic Empire, King David, his house, his empire, never existed. In fact, it was a creation of some Jerusalem-based priests later on in history. They just wrote this fantastic story about this kingdom of David because they wanted their national history to sound so much better. And King David was a, a pretty awesome guy, right? In the Old Testament scriptures, he's a great warrior. Israelite, uh, the Israelites flourished under King David. And so it was all just made up. That's what the Bible critic will say. And he made the statement that archaeology 
is how these things have been disproven. And I'm going to tell you, I challenge that 100%. In fact, archaeology is how we find some of the strongest evidence, external proofs, that the Scriptures are true in what they say. And I want to talk about some of those things with you this evening. Between 2500 and 2250 BC, there was a kingdom known as the Kingdom of Ebla. This was a very ancient uh, kingdom that coexisted alongside uh, some of the the ancients uh, of the Old Testament. From the ancient Kingdom of Ebla in northern Syria, these 17,000 or so tablets were discovered in 1975. Now, on these tablets, these are 4,000 to 4,500 years old as far as they're dated, okay, from this ancient kingdom. They're written in two different languages, and they share many names with names we find in biblical text, like Abram, David, Esau, Ishmael, Israel, Michael, and Saul. All of those names are found in these tablets this archaeological find from 4,000 to 4,500 years ago in this ancient kingdom. Now, they're not referring, probably, to the actual men, but the point is that those names that the Old Testament records as very real people that lived is backed up that those names were used during this time frame. Backs up that those names were common names during this time frame. And it simply confirms some of the things we see in Scripture. There are also common city names, Salem, Hazor, Lachish, Gaza, Sinai, Ashtaroth, Joppa, and Damascus. All names of cities referenced in these 17,000 or so tablets. And one of the most amazing things that these tablets hold is the names of five kingdoms that formed sort of an alliance or a confederacy at one point. And these same five cities are found mentioned in the Old Testament scripture in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 8 said, And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, the same is Zoar. The Bible mentions these five cities. You'll recognize at least the first two, Sodom and Gomorrah. They're a part of this five kingdom or city alliance, if you will. Those five cities are listed in the exact same order mentioned in this alliance type of situation within these tablets. Now, critics of the Bible before this said, well, there's no proof that these places even exist. There's no proof. It's just a fantastic story. And here's proof that they existed from an external proof outside of Scripture. Dr. Clifford Wilson uh, has a Ph.D. in psycholinguistics, is an archaeologist, linguist, says it is at least thought-provoking that findings such as those at Ebla consistently support the Bible as a thoroughly acceptable Record. Let's look at another one. The Tel Dan Stele, dated to between 900 and 850 BC. This is about 100, 150 years, 200 years, give or take, somewhere in that range, after King David would have lived and reigned over Israel. This Stele was built. Now, a Stele is essentially an upright monument. It's a big stone, or they make make it out of some sort of stone. It's upright. It stands there. It has text on it. It commemorates some great victory or battle that that king or that kingdom has fought. So this Tel Dan Stele is one of those. Discovered fragments of this Stele in 1993 and 94 in Tel Dan of northern Israel. This one commemorates the victory of an Armenian king over two enemies. One, the king of Israel and the other, the king of the house of David, and mentions them exactly that way on the stele. Now, this is the first mention in archaeology that anyone ever found with the words house of David on it. And while Bible critics for a long time were saying, see, there's no proof that David ever existed, there's no proof that the kingdom of David existed, there's no proof that the Old Testament isn't just a collection of fantastic stories, And they find this, and guess what? This king's talking about a battle he won over the king of Israel, the king of the house of David, that southern kingdom. Just interesting to me that it backs up what Scripture says. Dr. Eric Klein, he's an expert in ancient history, author, historian, 
said, Today, after much further discussion in academic journals, it is accepted by most archaeologists that the inscription is not only genuine, but that the reference is indeed to the house of David, thus representing the first textual evidence found anywhere outside the Bible for the biblical David. Let's look at another one, if you would, with me. The Misha Steely. This one is incredibly fascinating to me, so pay close attention if you would. The Misha Steely dated to about 846 BC, about the same time frame as the Tel Dan Steely. Sometimes it's referred to as the Moabite Stone. This is a huge uh, commemorative monument with a lot of the text still remaining. As you can see in the picture behind me, a lot of that text is still there. It records the revolt of a king of Moab named Misha. Now, for a long time, this was another example that a critic would turn to and say, there's no uh, proof that the Moabites even exist. They'd take the whole people. The Moabites, there's no proof that they ever existed. It's a made-up people that the Old Testament talks about. And then they find this. And in this text, it says in line one, I am Misha, son of Chemosh Yati. That's uh, the pagan god that the people worshipped the king of Moab, the Dibonite. And in the very first line of this stele, this man, Misha, identifies himself and says, of Moab. Finally, the first proof that, hey, the Moabites actually do exist. And you see in 2 Kings 3, verse 4 and 5, the scriptures actually refer to this same man. And Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep master, etc. And then 2 Kings 3 will go on to tell a story about this king that I want to reference here for just a minute. If you do, uh, don't remember the Moabites in the scripture, I want to refer you to a couple of passages. Genesis 19, verse 36-37 tells us that the Moabites are descendants of Lot. Lot's son, you remember Lot, Lot's son was named Moab and became the father of this people. Okay, so that's who they are. Ruth, in the book of Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite. In 1 Samuel 22 and verse 4, when David was hiding from King Saul, do you remember that time frame? He actually took his parents to the king of Moab to hide them there so that Saul wouldn't get to them. So the Moabites are there throughout Scripture for a long while and in several places. In lines 4 through 7 of this stele, he mentions a couple of names, or he mentions one name in particular. He says, As for Omri, the king of Israel... And he humbled Moab for many years, for Chemosh was angry with his land, and his son reigned in his place, and he also said, I will oppress Moab. In my days he said so. This is that king, Misha, in his stele, saying, Hey, Omri, the king of Israel, and his son have tried to oppress me. Well, do the scriptures record that? They sure do. First Kings 16.29, In the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign in Israel. So Omri and his son, Ahab, who you might remember marries a woman named Jezebel, right? Ahab was a very evil and wicked king. Ahab and Omri both oppressed Moab, and we'll go back to 2 Kings uh, and read kind of the story in just a moment, but it's mentioned here in this archaeological find. Line 17 and 18 of this stele, uh, Misha is telling the story. He says, And from there I took the vessels of Yahweh. You recognize the name Yahweh? Yahweh was the special name that the Israelites had for God. And it's interesting that in this non-biblical source of archaeology, Yahweh and that particular name is named. Something that they hadn't really seen before anywhere else. It also mentions, says, and I presented them before the face of Chemosh. I mentioned, mentioned that that's the pagan god that they worshipped. The scriptures even refer to this pagan god, Chemosh, in Judges eleven twenty four. Wilt not thou possess that which Chemosh thy god giveth thee to possess? So you have the Bible and you have this uh, ancient piece of archaeology that are both complimenting each other and talking about the same things. And yet critics of the scripture will say, all of that's just made up stories. It's just fantastic stories created by people who wanted to make their national history better. And I say it's not. In line 31, it says, "...in the house of David dwelt in Haran." And now, the house of David, they were able to translate that because of the Tel Dan stele that we just looked at a moment ago. You remember that was the first time they saw house of David. They didn't know what that line was on this one till they translated that one. And now they recognize they have two different pieces of archaeology that mention the house of David and his kingdom. 
and the amazing extra-biblical proof that that is, that these things existed. In line 7, Misha tells the story of his revolt against Israel. He says, But I triumphed over him and over his house, and Israel has perished. In lines 14 through 16, he says, Chemosh said to me, Go, take Nebo from Israel. And I went in the night and fought against it from the daybreak until midday, and I took it and I killed the whole population. Now remember, this is a commemorative stone, right? Well, he's bragging about these battles that he's won against Israel. All the Bible records about this is that he revolted. In 2 Kings 3, verse 5, it says, But it came to pass when Ahab was dead that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And then 2 Kings 3 tells the story of how Israel goes and they attack. They form kind of a coalition and they go and attack the Moabites and they drive the Moabites all the way back into their land. And they defeat them. They utterly defeat them until they get there to that main city that Misha occupies. And Misha knows then that he is surrounded and he's beat. And instead of continuing to fight a losing battle, Misha grabs his son and he stands up on the wall before the entire uh, army of Israel and he kills his son in front of the army. And the scriptures record that Israel was essentially disgusted by the display and retreated and returned home. And even though the scriptures take it from the Israelites' point of view that they pushed Misha back, Misha's commemorating this as a great victory because they didn't take him. They didn't destroy him and he won his independence through that horrible act of sacrificing his son in front of them. And that's the story that 2 Kings 3 tells. You can go and reference that on your own at some point if you'd like. Kyle Boot is a speaker, writer, and editor for Apologetics Press. And he says, Taken as a whole, the Moabite stone remains one of the most impressive pieces of evidence verifying the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. And although this find has been around almost 150 years, it still speaks to us today. And I hope you can see how that those finds are incredibly important for especially critics of the Scripture. I know you and I as Christians, we have faith and we believe these things. And whether or not it's, it's found on this ancient monument to us isn't really going to shake our faith. We believe this if we're a Christian. But to someone that's not a Christian, to someone that is particularly skeptical about Scripture, these finds are incredibly important to show them that the Bible is historically true and accurate. I want to tell you about some artifacts about a man named Nabonidus for just a moment. And these two are particularly interesting. Daniel 5, 1 and 2. We find a story of a man named Belshazzar. You remember Daniel. Daniel was exiled in Babylon. You may remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Some of those things would come later. But Daniel served under a couple of different uh, empires, a couple of different, uh, several different kings, in fact. In Daniel 5, the Bible mentions a king by the name of Belshazzar. It says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. This uh, scripture also calls Belshazzar, or calls Nebuchadnezzar, the father of Belshazzar. Now this is going to be important because uh, skeptics and critics of the scriptures, who had previously seen no evidence that Belshazzar ever existed or was ever a king, pointed at this passage and said, this is proof that the Bible is made up. Because we have a list of the Babylonian kings. And we know who the last Babylonian king was. And it's not Belshazzar. Now, if you remember the story in Daniel 5, uh, this is the story where Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall. Right? And uh, he sees that great hand and it's writing there on the wall and he's afraid and he doesn't know, he can't read it and he calls people to try to figure out, to translate what it says. And Daniel is called in and Daniel is able to translate the writing on the wall and essentially it is that um, you're about to be overthrown and killed. And that very night, in fact, um, Belshazzar was killed and Darius the Mede took the kingdom. Now, that story is important because... It very uh, specifically mentions Belshazzar as being the last king of Babylon. Well, was he or was he not? From history and and external documents, they know that these are the last five kings of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, who did a lot of things and is in Scripture a lot, you'll recognize his name, he ruled for a long time. Then there were three guys that ruled for very short amounts of time, about six years altogether, those next three in line. And then came a guy named... Nabonidus. Nabonidus is not mentioned in Scripture. 
and he is listed as the last king of Babylon before Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians. Well, that contradicts Scripture, doesn't it? And that's proof right there that the Scriptures are made up, and they're not true. Well, actually, there was an important find made that proved otherwise. The Nabonidus artifacts. In 1854, there were four cylinders. You see the top picture there. Four of those cylinders found at Ur. Another cylinder with a different inscription was discovered in 1881 near Babylon. The four cylinders found at Ur were all exactly the same, contained the exact same inscriptions. The one on the bottom there is called the Nabonidus Chronicle. It was found or acquired in 1879 by the British Museum. These artifacts talk about that last king of Babylon, Nabonidus. Now here's why I bring this up. Within that cylinder, one of those cylinders from Ur... It says this, As for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great Godhead and grant me as a present a life long of days. And as for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring, instill reverence for your great Godhead in his heart and may he not commit any cultic mistake and may he be sated with a life of plentitude. This is a prayer of Nabonidus about his son who he names Belshazzar. Now, this shattered every skeptic and every critic who used this to say the scriptures are untrue because Belshazzar never existed. And all of a sudden, there's a piece of archaeology that says he does. Belshazzar was a real guy. In fact, he was Nabonidus' son. Now, the scriptures said, though, that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember? He said his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, how can that be? Is this a, is this a contradiction we find? I want you to remember some other things about uh, Scripture and about reading Scripture. There are many places in Scripture that refer to people as father or son, talking about a lineage, not necessarily the parent relationship, but perhaps the grandparent relationship and using those terms. One of those is found in 2 Samuel 9 and verse 7. You may remember the story where David brings a man named Mephibosheth. This is uh, Jonathan's son, King Saul's grandson. He brings him before him and he wants to do something good for Mephibosheth because he was friends with Jonathan. And he said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. Okay, this is just an example. Mephibosheth was not Saul's son. Saul was not Mephibosheth's father. He was his grandfather. But the terms are used that way to talk about lineage. So, when it says that Nebuchadnezzar was uh, Belshazzar's father, very easily could have meant grandfather or ancestor. Well, Could that be true? Jeremiah 27 verse 17 tells us about Nebuchadnezzar. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. So Jeremiah actually prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar's son would rule and then his grandson would rule and then the kingdom would fall. Okay, so could Belshazzar be... Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. We already know he's Nabonidus' son. Nabonidus is not Nebuchadnezzar's son. So he's not the grandson on his father's side. Eason's Bible Dictionary says he was the son of Nabonidus by Nitocris, who was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and the widow of however you want to pronounce that gentleman's name. Now you say, well, yeah, you're bringing me a Bible dictionary. That's not much external proof, right? Well, let's go to the Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, The Babylonian inscription indicates that he was, in fact, the eldest son of Nabonidus, who was king of Babylon from 555 to 539, and of Nitocris, who was perhaps a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Now you notice the secular source doesn't confirm it exclusively, but it says, very well may have been a daughter of this woman who was Nebuchadnezzar's son. And I present to you the fact that I believe Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus and Nitocris, who was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. He was, therefore, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. So when the scripture says, Nebuchadnezzar thy father, it was being truthful that he was from the lineage of Nebuchadnezzar. And the cylinders that state that Belshazzar was Nabonidus' son are truthful. The only other problem with this is it called him a king. And very clearly, external history says that Belshazzar was never a king. So was he? 
This is where the Nabonidus Chronicle is important. In this other find, it says this. When the third year was about to begin, he entrusted, speaking of Nabonidus, he entrusted the army to his oldest son, his firstborn, the troops in the country he ordered under his command. He let everything go, entrusted his kingship to him, and himself he started out for a long journey. Now this chronicle talks about how Nebuchadnezzar took a very long leave of about seven years from his kingly duties. And he put, guess who? His son Belshazzar as king in his place. Now this would technically have been known as a co-regency. Nabonidus was still technically king, but Belshazzar was acting king. The kingship was entrusted to him. So it's very easy to see how that those ruling under him would have called him King Belshazzar. It also confirms why in Daniel 5.16, Belshazzar told Daniel, if you can interpret the writing on the wall, I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. Had Belshazzar been king alone, he could have offered him second in command, but he wasn't. Nabonidus was king, Belshazzar was number two, the, the acting king, so to speak. And then he said, I'll make you third. Do you see how all those pieces can fit together? And to me, I know some of you may not be history buffs like I am, but that's particularly fascinating to me, how you can pull these external documents, these archaeological finds, and you can see how actually they prove exactly what the Scriptures say. And to me, that's faith-strengthening and faith-building. And I want to look at one more find with you. And this has to do with the New Testament. This has to do with Pontius Pilate, right? That great, oh, important character that he was, for he plays a huge part in the execution of our Savior Jesus Christ, right? And for many years, critics have said there's no proof that Pilate himself ever existed. Until 1961, this dedication stone was found at a Roman amphitheater in Caesarea Maritima, Israel. This limestone block that was once used as a dedication stone of a nearby temple and was more recently used for seating at a local theater had an extraordinary inscription. It read this, Tiberium Pontius Pilatus Prefectus Judeiae. And that's uh, obviously not in English. It translates to this, Tiberius Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. And this stone with Pilate's name engraved on it, with Tiberius engraved on it, who was the Caesar at this point under, uh, or that Pilate was under, evidently represents a gift that Pontius Pilate gave to Caesar Tiberius at some point. This block would later be moved, it would be used as seating at this theater, whatever, and it would be stuck there until finally someone discovers it, turns it over and reads the inscription on it, and it has Pilate's name on it. And for all the skeptics and critics who said, Pilate is just a made-up character and didn't exist, it suddenly proved them wrong. And we know Matthew 27, verse 2 tells us, when they had bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. We know Pontius Pilate's a real guy and really existed. We have faith in the Scriptures because we believe the Scriptures are inspired. And the only point I want to make with archaeology, whether you like it or not, is it backs it up. It backs up the truth of the Bible's claim. And if it backs up the truth of the Bible's claim, then to me that proves and helps prove the Bible's really the Bible really is inspired. It really is written by God. It really is truthful and accurate and reliable. And we really can rely on the things that it says. It's not just a bunch of lies. Dr. William Albright, who was the foremost authority in archaeology uh, during his lifetime, 1891 to 1971, he said, There can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament. It confirms it. Nelson Gluick, a renowned Jewish archaeologist, said, No archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical, biblical reference. No piece of archaeology that's ever been discovered has proven the Bible wrong. Not one. And in fact... Every piece of archaeology that has anything to do with Scripture proves it true and proves it right. For a few minutes, I also want to look at some, some, in, uh, some early historical writings, some different people that existed during the first century that wrote about Jesus. Because one of the other biggest critiques and biggest uh, complaints that skeptics have 
has been throughout history about Jesus. Because if they can disprove something about Jesus, if they can disprove that He is who He said He was, and if they can disprove even that He exists, wow, how wonderful would that be for the world to not have to live under Jesus and not have to live under Christianity to prove that it's all false, right? You say, well, how can you even attempt to, to, to pretend like Jesus didn't exist? Well, as of only five years ago, there was a book put out by David Fitzgerald called Nailed, Ten Christian Myths That Show Jesus Never Existed at All. Now, this floored me in finding this because there is an overabundance of evidence that Jesus existed. Now, if you want to argue who Jesus was, if you want to deny that He was the Son of God, if you want to deny the power that He showed then you can deny that if you want to all day. But you really can't deny that he existed. And I hope that I can show that to you this evening. But this guy believes that he can. And he's quoted in this book as saying, doesn't it just make more sense to assume that there was a historical Jesus, even if we are unable to recover the real facts about his life and death? As it turns out, no. The opposite is true. The closer we look at the evidence for Jesus, the less solid evidence we find. And the more we find suspicious silences and curious resemblances to the pagan and Jewish religious ideas and philosophies that preceded Christianity. And once you begin to parse out the origins of this tradition or that teaching from their various sources, the sweater begins unraveling quickly until it becomes very difficult to buy that there was ever or even could have been any historical figure at the center. Can you believe that? That as of five years, this guy's writing a book saying, actually, all the evidence is unraveling the sweater of Christianity to where we don't even believe that there ever was a historical figure named Jesus. And I want to debunk that with you this evening. And I want to look at several early writings from secular sources, non-Christian people that wrote about Jesus and wrote about Christianity. And the first is Josephus. You've probably heard of Josephus. He was the Jewish historian of the first century. He wrote in Antiquities of the Jews. He wrote this. Read it with me. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew, drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. Now Josephus, in his writings, very clearly tells essentially the gospel story and the story that we see in the New Testament about Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to tell you something important about Josephus and this quote. His skeptics will say, those things that he said about Jesus, they were added later by Christians. Because Josephus was a Jew. So Josephus wouldn't have called Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And you know what? They may be right. They may be right. It could have been messed with. It could have been changed. It could have been translated differently. Christians could have messed with some of the wording there and changed that. But it doesn't change the fact that he mentioned him. I want to show you a different translation. This was found, an Arabic translation from the 10th century that had nothing to do with the original translation line. So if it was messed with, it wouldn't show up here. Okay? So this is that same passage from Josephus in this Arabic translation. It says, At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon their loyalty to him. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, they believed that he was the Messiah concerning whom the prophets had recounted wonders. Now, it is interesting to me that in this one he doesn't call Jesus the Christ. So is there validity to the fact that maybe some of Josephus' words were messed with a little bit? Maybe so. But we don't need a Christian perspective telling us that Christ existed. We're looking tonight at some external sources. And the external Jewish historian Josephus, in whatever version you want to look at, states that Jesus existed, Pilate existed and condemned him to death, and that Christians believed and followed after him. And that's a secular historical source simply stating that Jesus did in fact exist. 
Now, there's a man named Cornelius Tacitus. He's a Roman historian who lived in the first century, first and second century, in about 116 AD. So you're talking 80 years or so after Jesus, right? He writes this in his books of history. He is very anti-Christian. This is not a, a Christian source at all. He says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Now listen to the words that Tacitus uses to describe Christianity and and maybe get, get a little offended at, at the way he's talking about Christians. He's comparing us to a hideous and shameful thing that found its way into Rome. But I want you to notice what he did. He admitted that Jesus existed and that Christians existed. He said, Christus, Christ, of whom the name had its origin. And then he says that Pilate condemned him to death in the reign of Tiberius, and he said that mischievous superstition, that mis- those, these mis- mischievous Christians that we are, and our superstitious nature, started in Judea, but guess what? It even got to Rome, where all the shameful and evil things end up getting. And he's, I guess, venting a little frustration about Christianity. But here's a very anti-Christian source that says Christ existed, Pilate put him to death, Christianity flourished and spread. Whether he meant to or not, he's giving you and I as Christians external evidence of the things that the Bible records. There's another one that I want you to notice. Marabar Seropian was a Roman philosopher. He wrote a letter to his son. This is, I have the date on the next slide, 73 to 200 AD. So sometime in the first 100 to 200 years or so, 50 to 200 years after Christ. I'm not sure exactly the date. He writes this letter. In this letter he says, What else can we say? When the wise are forcibly dropped off by tyrants, their wisdom is captured by insults, and their minds are oppressed and without defense. What advantage did the Athenians gain from murdering Socrates? Famine and plague came upon them as a punishment for their crime. What advantage did the men of Samos gain from burning Pythagoras? In a moment their land was covered with sand. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. The Athenians died of hunger, the Samians were overwhelmed by the sea, and the Jews, desolate and driven from their own kingdom, live in complete dispersion. But Socrates is not dead because of Plato, neither is Pythagoras because of the statue of Juno, nor is the wise king because of the new law he laid down. Now, here's a non-Christian man simply writing a letter to his son, and he's drawing uh, the, the picture in his son's mind of these three wise leaders. And one of those wise leaders that he mentions is the king of the Jews. Now, no Christian would have used that term. So for any skeptic that wanted to say, well, he really uh, was partial to Christianity, no Christian would have called him the king of the Jews. He is Christian's uh, king, not the Jews' king, but our king, everyone's king who believes in him. And he mentions uh, Jesus as being put to death. And then he mentions at the very end of his statement there about Jesus is not dead or that wise king is not dead because of the new law he laid down. That new law is the new law that you and I follow today. It's the New Testament. It's the teachings of the New Testament. The things that we believe. The things that we practice. The things that we hold dear about Christ and about Christianity. That's the new law that you and I follow. And here's a non-Christian man in a letter to his son referencing this Christ and the new law that he laid down. Here's another man named Pliny the Younger. He was a Roman governor from about 111 to 113 AD, about 80 years after Jesus had been crucified. He was writing a letter to the emperor asking him how to handle Christians. Now, go look up his whole uh, letter to the emperor sometime. I didn't want to read the whole text to you, uh, and but go look at it sometime because it's interesting. All of the questions and remarks that he makes about Christianity toward the emperor. But I want to read a couple for you. 
he's asking the emperor about Christians. He says, For who can give better guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in trials of Christians. This is a new thing for him. So he's not sure how to handle it. He says, They were accustomed, speaking of Christians, to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. Now he's giving some specific details about some of the early practices of Christians in the early church. I wonder what that fixed day was that they were meeting on. You wonder? I'd bet you that it's Sunday that they were meeting on. And that they were singing a hymn responsively to Christ as to a God. That they were lifting Christ up as God and singing praise to Him. Isn't that what you and I 2,000 years later are still doing? And here's a guy, a governor, who's having to handle the trials of Christians going, here's what they're doing, I'm not sure how to handle it, what do I do? Emperor, I want to read you a couple more. It says, For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. Now he gives another little indication to us that this was not just a small little tiny sect. There were a bunch of Christians that this man was having to deal with. Just as the New Testament records that the spread of Christianity happened like a blaze of fire, that missionary, uh, the journeys that Paul went on, that all of the preaching that the apostles did, that Christianity spread. And there was a large number involved. And Pliny the Younger confirms that. And he says, for the contagion of this superstition, there's the superstition again, and contagion, now we're a plague, a bad disease, He says, for the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. It's going everywhere. This Christianity problem, it's going everywhere. What do I do, emperor? How do you want me to handle that? And we actually have record of the emperor's response uh, to this Roman governor as well. Go look those up sometimes, uh, sometime and look at it. To me, it's amazing that somebody as of five years ago could make the statement that There's no reason to believe that Jesus ever existed when all of these external sources talk about him. Men that were there, that saw him, that were there within 80 to 100 years, and they're talking about him. If Jesus never existed, none of these things would either. None of these writings would either. But because they do exist, that's just proof that Jesus himself did as well. And I want to uh, give you one more uh, external writing from a man named Lucian of Samosota, 120 to 180 A.D. So we're talking, oh, 100, 150 years after Christ. He was a satirist and a writer who was scornful of Christians. And he wrote this in his book. He's making fun of Christians. He doesn't like Christians very much. He says, the Christians worship a man to this day. The distinguished personage who introduced this new cult and was crucified on that account. Now, here's a man trying to make fun of Christians, but he's admitting in that that Jesus was crucified and that this man is worshipped to this day. He said, you see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains their contempt for death and self-devotion. Now, this is very interesting to me because he mentions a tenet of Christian faith, right? Immortality. We might call it eternal life. That we believe that life is eternal. We believe that when we pass from this life, we're not dead. But we'll remain alive with God, with Christ in heaven for eternity. We believe that because that's what the scriptures teach. And this man is talking about that well-known fact that this is what Christians believe. And that that gives them a contempt for death, and for self-devotion. He also wrote, their lawgiver, speaking of Christ, taught that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take on faith. Now it's interesting to me that from a non-Christian's writings, we can get a pretty good idea of the way that Christians behaved that long ago. And it's pretty much the same as you and I should and do behave today. That we have faith. That we believe that we're brothers and sisters with one another in Christ. That we deny other gods. And that we worship worship the crucified Savior of mankind, Jesus Christ. 
and we live after his laws. Last thing I want to talk about relating to this is a concept, and that's the darkness at the crucifixion. When Jesus was crucified, the New Testament records in Matthew 27, 45, and 46, and then a couple of verses, 50 and 51. You might remember, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. You remember the picture that the, that the scriptures are drawing of how that as Jesus was crucified, darkness fell over the earth for three hours. Rocks were torn into pieces. The earth began to quake, to shake, because of this great event that was happening. Thallus was a first century Greek historian. We have some of his writings recorded through another man named Julius Africanus, a 2nd and 3rd century historian. He records Thallus as stating this, or, or refers to Thallus in this way. And I want you to listen to this. He says, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, that 1st century historian, in the 263 3rd book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Now, evidently, Thallus, this first century historian, knew very well of the darkness that had fallen over the land. And he said it was an eclipse, right? The moon blocked the sun. We had an eclipse. And that's why it was dark for three hours, okay? That's what he explains it away as. Flagon of Trowels essentially says the same thing. This is another Greek writer, historian. He lived in the second century A.D. He said, in the fourth year, however, of Olympiad 202, an eclipse of the sun happened, Now look at the bottom of his quote. He says, An earthquake in Bithynia toppled many buildings of the city of Nicaea. Now here's a couple of non-Christian historians stating that there was an eclipse, and for whatever reason that eclipse happened, there was darkness, and there was also earthquakes that happened, and some buildings fell down and that sort of thing. But it was all because of this eclipse. Tertullian was a 2nd century Christian apologist. He said, At the moment of Christ's death, The light departed from the sun, and the land was darkened at noonday, which wonder is related in your own annals and is preserved in your own archives to this day. This man was speaking to skeptics and critics and saying, your own history records that the darkness happened. So why are you denying it? Okay, just piece all of these things together as we go. I want to ask you the question, could it have been a solar eclipse? John 19, verse 14, tells us that Jesus was crucified at the time of the Passover, right? You remember that from Scripture. The Babylonian Talmud, which is a secular Jewish source, kind of a commentary to go with Scripture, records some history, confirms that it was on the eve of the Passover that Jesus was hanged. Okay? So at the time of the Passover, Jesus is crucified. The Passover is celebrated for seven or eight days, starting on the night of a full moon in April. Did you know that? The Passover starts on the night of a full moon. Now, if you know anything about the cycle of the moon, a full moon means the moon is on the opposite side from that of the sun. And it will take two weeks in the cycle of the moon for the moon to get to the other side and be in the right place to cause what? An eclipse. Actually, the moment that Jesus died, the moon was on the opposite part of its cycle that it should have been was two weeks away from even possibly creating a solar eclipse. And yet those first century writers said the darkness happened. Now they chalked it up to an eclipse, but it couldn't have been an eclipse. They admitted that it happened. So what caused it? And I'll tell you, I don't know. And no one knows. There are some other natural things people will try to come up with to explain how that darkness may have happened, how the earthquake may have happened. But I agree with this guy, Julius Africanus, that 2nd or 3rd century Christian. He said, Flagon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the 6th hour to the ninth. Manifestly, that that one of which we speak. But what has an eclipse in common with an earthquake? The rending of rocks and the resurrection of the dead and so great a perturbation throughout the universe. You know what he's saying? Even if it was an eclipse, which it's not, and which it wasn't, 
what does an eclipse have to do with an earthquake? How would a solar eclipse have caused an earthquake and rocks to be torn in pieces and buildings to come down? doesn't make sense. But it made me think of Luke chapter 19 and verse 37. I want you to read this with me. Talking about Jesus, says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd saith unto him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You remember how Jesus referred to the fact that if the people weren't praising him, the stones would? The stones would stand up and cry out the praise because he's the Savior, the Son of God. I don't know if this is why, but the only thing that I can think that would explain the darkness and the earthquakes and the rocks splitting in two is that nature itself was witnessing the death of the Savior. That the universe itself was reacting to the death of the Son of God. And that the very real and truthful Jesus Christ, who was who He said He was, the Savior of mankind, the Messiah, the King, hung there and died on a cross for all of mankind. And the rocks that would have stood up and praised Him, they were broken and torn in two. And the earth that existed all around him that he helped create, shook and trembled. And the light, which he helped at the very beginning of creation to create, disappeared and went dark for three hours. Because the Son of God gave his life on that cross for you and for me and for every other person that has ever will ever exist. And to me, history shows the power of Christ. And history shows the truthfulness of Christ. And history shows the accuracy and the inspiration of the scriptures that you and I read and hold dear to our lives. The Encyclopedia Britannica said, These independent accounts prove that in ancient times even the opponents of Christianity never doubted the historicity of Jesus. He existed, folks. He existed. He did what He said He did. He was who He said He was. The universe, the earth, and the very rocks reacted to His death. I hope that if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, you'll react to His death by choosing to become a child of His. I hope that you'll see the great power that He holds over everything. And that you'll give his life to him through believing, through confessing, through repenting and being baptized. If you're here and you are a Christian but not lived the type of life that you should, maybe you've lacked faith, maybe you've uh, gotten into sin that you shouldn't have gotten into, we can pray with you, we can pray for you. If you'll come, sit on our front pew as we stand and sing.